0: The day was January seventeenth, 1991. I was sitting at the McDonald's as a 17-year-old kid, the McDonald's right by Drake University. I had just had uh, a music lesson there. I was driving on the way from there to youth group and uh, stopped at McDonald's as I'm eating my quarter pounder with cheese. Uh, a large fry and a coca-cola and sitting there all of a sudden in McDonald's the radio started playing and it wasn't just music it was like break in news report kind of thing and as i listened the commentator on the news was talking about the planes that were flying into kuwait and beginning the invasion of kuwait for the first gulf war uh, in kuwait and in iraq and as a 17-year-old kid, fear just overtook me. Because the only really experience I had was learning about there had not been a real war in my lifetime that I remembered. And I had learned about the Vietnam War, and that was the most recent war I could think of. And in the Vietnam War, there was a draft, and 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, I guess, would get enlisted when they when they turned the proper age, and, and uh, they would be drafted and forced to be enlisted into the army. And I just had this horrible fear that this was going to happen to me. Uh, I was certain it would. I don't know. Does the thought of being listed, enlisted, does that frighten you? Um, some of you in this room have bravely served our country uh, in this way. And so maybe it's not as fearful for you But for many of us who have not, being enlisted is terrifying. What if I were to tell you today that you have already been enlisted and you may not even be aware of it? You've already been enlisted. The minute you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you were enlisted into the army of the kingdom of God. You were enlisted into the army of kingdom workers. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pastor Dave. Uh, you know, like, what are you talking about? So, someone just once told me that if I prayed a prayer, I'd get to go to heaven. What are you talking about, this enlisted stuff? When did I sign up for an army? Well, the truth is that Jesus didn't command us to make converts, He didn't say, go and make prayer prayers. He said, go and make disciples. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a disciple and you've been enlisted as a kingdom worker for the kingdom of God. And so today, what we're going to see happen is that Jesus, he wasn't trying to make intellectually intelligent disciples. Jesus was enlisting disciples who could do kingdom work that he was doing. If you're a disciple, you've been enlisted as a laborer for the kingdom of God. And that means doing the work that Jesus did, the way Jesus did it. In fact, if I were to put this into a phrase for you today that you could follow along with and write down the one thing that I always tell you to to keep track of, it's this. In the kingdom of God, enlisting means doing the work Jesus did, the way Jesus did it. Doing the work Jesus did, the way Jesus did it. This phrase, I think, forms a great outline for our text today as we walk through this text together. It forms a nice outline for these 10 verses in Luke. Now, I want to remind you, as I always do, it's been two weeks since we've been in Luke, Um, and so I want to remind you that we talk about Luke, the gospel of Luke, as the theme being life on purpose, meaning Luke is out to show that Jesus wasn't an accident, that Jesus just didn't happen into, oops, I accidentally got crucified, so we might as well make it for the sins of everyone. No, Luke is showing us the purpose with which Jesus was sent. And so he talks about his journey from heaven to earth and in the section we're in now, his journey around the region of Galilee. And as we see this, it also means because Jesus was on purpose, we should also live our lives on purpose. And today I want to show you that that means being enlisted in the kingdom of God and engaged with this kingdom. So, Just as a review, the three sermons that we preached leading up to this text today, they were all gearing us for Luke 9, verse 1. Everything we've done for the past three sermons has been looking forward to this moment in 9, chapter 1. And it's all about Jesus' power and authority. So we saw about a month ago when we saw that Jesus calmed the storm, he had power and authority over the forces of nature. And then we saw him come out on, on, get out of the boat and immediately be confronted by a demon legion. And we saw that Jesus had power and authority over the spiritual forces of evil. And then the last passage we looked at, we saw that Jesus has the power and authority over disease. He heals the woman with the issue of blood and even death as he raises this girl from the dead. And up to this point, the disciples have just been watching. They're like bystanders, right? With the exception of when the, they are in the boat, they thought they were gonna die, but pretty much they're just kind of watching Jesus. Whoa, he has power and authority over storms. Whoa, look at that. He, can, he has power and authority over the forces of evil. Whoa, look at that. He can heal de- disease. He has power, authority over disease and even death. Wow. But look what happens in chapter 9 Verse 1. And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority. This this idea of Jesus' power and authority has been traced throughout the last chapter 8. So he had, he commands, says that word appears over and over. He commands. This idea continues in chapter 8. As he grants permission, he has power, he allows, he charges. Everything points to Jesus, power and authority. And so up to here, what is up to now? Jesus has the power and authority, and now he's going to grant this to his disciples. Look at verse two, Uh, verse one, sorry. He gave them power and authority over all demons. Jesus had just cast out a demon and to cure diseases. Jesus had just healed a a woman. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. You see, the kingdom of God, enlisting in the kingdom of God means doing the work that Jesus did the way he did it. So I want to take this sentence apart and just look at the two things it means to be enlisted. And the first thing is we're going to meet being enlisted in the kingdom of God means doing the work that Jesus did. And we see this begin to be highlighted right away in verse two. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Two things. What is the work that Jesus did? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he healed. What's he going to ask his disciples to do now? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. These two things. And really, um, Mike set the scene for us way back like a month and a half ago in the beginning of Luke chapter 8 when uh, in, verse, in Luke 8, 21, Jesus said this, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Hear and do. So what, what are the disciples supposed to do? Proclaim and heal. Hear and do. The work of Jesus you could simplify this to hear and do, to proclaim and heal, to say and do. You could simplify this to the gospel is proclaimed through words. The gospel is proclaimed through deeds. How did Jesus do these two things? Well, he proclaimed the forgiveness of God. Think about this, to the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' uh, feet. We looked at this passage six or eight weeks ago. And this woman came and she bowed at his feet and with her tears wiped his feet and put expensive perfume on them, anointed him. Remember that? And what does he turn and say to her? Your sins are forgiven. He proclaims the the truth, the forgiveness of God. And then he heals those. He hears and hear and do (laughs) actions, words and actions. Do you see this all tied together? What's the work of Jesus? It's to speak and to do. Look at the miracles from last week. He he healed those in pain. He heals a woman who is bleeding. For 12 years, she'd been tormented. He raises a grieving man's daughter back to life. So he speaks the words of the gospel of forgiveness, and he brings healing to people. This is the power and authority that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's really amazing the kind of power and authority that Jesus did, that he would give this to his disciples. Um, so a, a few years ago, when my dad was getting uh, increasingly downhill with his health, uh, he and my mom thought it would be a good idea to have a power of attorney document signed for me. And so I'm their power of attorney. And and basically, for my mom, uh, what, what this document does is it gives me the legal right to make decisions on her behalf. I can sign a legal document as if I were her. Insert evil laugh, right? Like, are you crazy? Like, what the, What are you doing? I mean, like, I, I'm messed up. You're giving me this power. What are you doing? And that's like. <laughs> and then I understand that this is a massive responsibility. Um, she gave it to me because she trusts me. Okay, Jesus essentially gave the disciples his power of attorney, and I just think, is he crazy? Like. These, uh, like everything about these disciples in the pages previous do not say trustworthy. They do not go, wow, this is impressive. No, not at all. Uh, Is he crazy? He knows these guys. And in this timeless mystery that I'll never understand, Jesus trusts his power and authority to his disciples. And then he says, go in all the world and make disciples. So there is this sense in which you and I have been entrusted with the power and authority of Jesus. And I think Jesus is crazy. Now, what do the disciples do with this? Okay. So in verse two, he says, uh, go proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. If you flip forward to verse six, what did they do? Verse six, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel, proclaiming and healing everywhere. So Jesus said, go proclaim and heal. They went, proclaimed and healed. And then verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And they came back and reported what they did, proclaimed and healed. It's a pretty simple outline for our text today as you walk through it. And what you need to know is the disciples preached and they healed. What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God? If they proclaimed and healed, what does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God? Well, I think back to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. When Jesus stood up in the synagogue, he read this passage from Isaiah, and Luke is quoting it here, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is Jesus proclaiming? He's saying, you don't have to be, I'm proclaiming that no longer do you have to be bound by the forces of evil. I'm proclaiming freedom, Jesus says. Now, if we were to summarize this, that what, freedom from what? Well, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. And remember that God created human beings to be in intimate fellowship with him. And they declared rebellion against God when Adam and Eve sinned, fell to the temptation of Satan, Satan set himself up as imposter king of this world, wreaking death and disease, wreaking havoc, breaking this world. Satan is an imposter. And what Jesus came to do is restore things and set things right. And so for us, it means that we would proclaim the good news, the gospel. That Jesus died for the sins of humanity. That he rose from the dead. And that through faith, we can apply his his blood to cover our sins. It means proclaiming the gospel. In a sense, I I was thinking about this uh, this week, is is proclaiming the gospel really, you could summarize the gospel in the Trinity itself. Uh, The Father purposed from eternity past to rescue us. The Son came and took our place, and the Spirit empowers us to continue the work of Jesus. It's a simple application of the gospel. So Jesus said, I came to proclaim freedom. I'm reversing the curse. Then what did he do? He did it. He reversed the curse. Ultimately, through his death and resurrection, But even now, in Luke 9, as he is ministering and sending his disciples to minister, he's showing evidence of this God invading and breaking the curse and the stranglehold that Satan had on this world. You see, Jesus is working to undo the devastating effects of the curse. And in this way, he is bringing healing. So he raises a girl from the dead. What's the foremost curse? Death. And he breaks it. He heals a woman bleeding shame, and he's reversing the curse. He frees a man from the living hell of demonic possession, and he reverses the curse. He battles the storm, and he combats nature gone wrong, and he reverses the curse. He raises a widow's son from the dead. He reverses the curse. He heals a centurion's servant, reversing the curse of sickness, And in this way, Jesus is working to heal. And just stop for a second and feel Jesus' compassion, would you? Just feel his compassion for these people. He knows that their lives are being wrecked by the destruction of the curse of sin. And he feels it for them. You see, you and I do what Jesus did when we're working to reverse the curse. When we're freeing slaves and When we're walking with a teen parent who needs help or when we're feeding the hungry or when you're helping your neighbor and and stepping into his destroyed marriage and trying to reverse the curse of sin. Doing the kingdom work of Jesus means doing it in word and in deed. And we run into problems when we only do one or the other. When we only do the gospel in word, we run into problem. When we only do the gospel in deed, we have a problem. The gospel is supposed to be done in word and deed. Hear and do. Proclaim and heal. When we only do it in word, we risk the, the problem of being preachy or worse, communicating that people's pain, sickness, or poverty is unimportant. And, and, and in the past there have been evangelism campaigns where people just knock door to door and they just need to get someone to pray a prayer and then they're out. And all this communicates is that we need a notch in our belt when the gospel is only done in word. Um, When we have people looking for this kind of scorekeeping or church building or when we don't care about people but only care about our ability to speak words. It's a problem. I like this quote by Daryl Bach. He says this Telling unbelievers that God cares should be reinforced by evidence of such caring. You see, there's a problem when we only proclaim the gospel in words, but there's also a problem when we only proclaim the gospel in deed. Um, And this, I think, is a greater temptation for us in our culture today. Christians fall out of favor more and more in our culture where our culture becomes and the world becomes increasingly hostile to the Christian message where people no longer share a common foundation of the Bible and biblical culture. It becomes easy for us to say, I'll just show the gospel Indeed, We risk doing things that simply make us feel better. Oh, look at me. I did something nice. It makes me feel good to do something good. That's really just narcissism. You haven't taken your eyes off yourself for a second. You're just doing good things to make you feel good. If we accomplish deed only, we risk never actually speaking the gospel because the gospel, the word of God, was given to us in words. Words are really important. If we clean up yards but never speak of the God who has cleaned up our hearts, Something's missing. If we rebuild a shelter but never speak of the God who has sheltered us from sin, something is missing. If we feed a mouth but never speak with our mouths of the God who has fed our souls, something is missing. If we pay off someone's debt but never speak of the God who has paid our debt, something is missing. If we only do the gospel indeed, we miss the essence of the gospel hear and do, proclaim and heal. Speak the truth and do the truth. And so we do this. In the kingdom of God, being enlisted means doing the work that Jesus did. But it also means more than that. It means doing the work Jesus did the way he did it with complete dependence On the Father. There's actually three things that I would tell you, three ways that Jesus did it, and they're just right out of the text today. We're going to keep marching forward here in verse 3 to 5, and we're going to talk about the way Jesus did this. So the work was to proclaim and heal. What's the way he did it? Well, verse 3, he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Um, The the first thing you need to understand is that Jesus was discipling his disciples. (laughs) That, That sounds pretty obvious. But you think about it, everything we see Jesus doing, he's teaching them and training them to do the work that he did. And so what methods is he going to use? What techniques? Well, the first one is complete dependence on the Father. Jesus demonstrated this time and time again, that the way he did the work was completely and utterly dependent on the Father. He says, go on a trip to his disciples. You're going to go out. I'm sending you out. Go on a trip. By the way, don't take any luggage with you. You got one change of clothes. You don't need a suitcase, right? Don't take anything with you. Now, does this mean that Christians shouldn't own suitcases, right? Like, does this mean that we should uh, boycott Samsonite? After all, Samson wasn't a great, real great guy in the Bible. He kind of messed up. So maybe we should have a Christian boycott on Samsonite. Well, I, I think that that's not exactly what Jesus is pointing to them. It's not about the suitcase. It's about dependence on the heavenly father he wants them. How did they, can they best accomplish ministry? It's when they're utterly dependent on the Father. Then he also sort of says, don't, don't hedge your bets either. Like uh, He says, when you go town, don't like, line up multiple places to stay in case one doesn't work out, you always got one in your back pocket. He's saying, listen, as long as you're in that town, stay at one place and trust God will provide for you. There's this sense in which being dependent on God means not trusting in our own plans. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't have plans, but we trust ultimately in God to do this. But man, isn't it easy to trust our plans? Uh, so, So... Last week, I've been working with our Faith in Action team for a long time to pull together this. Everything was coming to a culmination on, on uh, September 29th. We had all this stuff lined up, and people would say, hey, Dave, eight, eight days beforehand, hey, Dave, what are we going to do if it rains? And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I don't have a plan B. Plan A, we're going to go do the work that God has put in front of us. And I knew... We had promised a whole bunch of people, 18 different homes, that we would minister to them in in whatever way. And I knew this was out there. I believed that it wouldn't rain. I prayed that it wouldn't rain. I prayed, God, you set this up, and I believe. I'm praying, God, please don't let it rain. And God didn't listen to me. (laughs) He didn't listen to me. I'm, I'm doing a supply run. I'm at Menard's. Um, getting some supplies, and all of a sudden on that tin roof, I hear it let loose. <sighs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, I, I didn't expect that most of you would stick around and finish your jobs, even though it was raining. Look, that never occurred to me. It just never occurred to me. I figured y'all quit and go home. Uh, it, I was blown away by that i 'd like to say, Aha, I knew God would come through you know that that this would work out, but I was up at five a m Sunday morning looking at the weather report, fretting right? like i don 't have it all together i 'm not completely dependent on god i 'd love to tell you that I was and it 's a struggle, but this is how Jesus did ministry he he It was not that he never had any luggage at all, it was not that he you know never had plans. Is that he depended on the Father for everything. And he wants his disciples to learn firsthand what it means to do ministry the way Jesus did it. Dependent on the Father. This is what he wanted. So when the synagogue ruler comes and says, Hey, come heal my daughter, Jesus responds, I'm the, I, I wasn't planning that, but okay. I'm the Son of God. I have authority over sickness. And when he was confronted by a demon after stepping out of the boat, he says, okay, I'm the son of God. I've got authority over the spiritual realm. I'll handle this one because I'm dependent on the father. And when he's asleep in the boat and the storm's raging around him, he says, I'm the son of God and I have authority over this. There's just this deep dependence because he knows the authority he's been granted by the father and he's extending that to his disciples. This is the authority that Jesus has granted to us. We shouldn't flaunt it. We should be dependent. And it certainly doesn't mean that we should throw out planning and administration. It just means that we trust the heavenly father. And Jesus is about to put his disciples in a position where they are forced to trust the father. And guess what? He does that with you and I too. You will be put in a position where you are forced to trust the heavenly father. And it's for your good. Because when the disciples come back and report to Jesus in verse 10, they just said, it's simple. So this is what we did. Because we were dependent on the Father. So doing ministry the way Jesus did it, doing kingdom work the way Jesus did it, means complete dependence on the Father. But it also means a willingness to walk away. This might seem counterintuitive. But watch what Jesus says. I'll read you verse five again. And, whenever, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. The New Living Translation just interprets that for us. Uh, it says, <coughs> abandon those people to their fate. I mean, I think that's the, the general sense here, that general idea when Jesus was ministering on the other side of the Galilee with Legion and and the pigs and the demons and all that stuff, do you remember what happened at the end? They, They said to Jesus, they begged him to depart. I mean, they were like, this guy is economic disaster for us. Get out of here, please. And what, he didn't stick around. He didn't like shake his fist in their face and go, oh, you can't make me go anywhere. I'm the son of God. No, he just left. He just left. There is a great discernment here. There's a great discernment here. Because there are those who do not want the ministry and the power and authority of Jesus to be introduced into their life. And so it's okay to walk away sometimes. And you just need to know that. You just need to know that as you say, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus and I'm going to do ministry the way Jesus did it, you need to be okay sometimes walking away. There is a trust and in the sovereignty and care of God. Uh, It's like parents when your your kid grows up and becomes a teenager and then leaves your house. And there's this point where you just got to go, I'm trusting my child to the sovereignty of God. I think there's that in so many relationships in our life, where it's just that sometimes we have to, with discernment, go, "Uh, okay, I've been here and I've been a present reality of the kingdom of God in this person's life, and they have said, I don't want any part of it. And in that case, it's okay to walk away. We are agents of the kingdom of God doing as we're told. A person is not your responsibility, but God's. And it's okay to walk away, and that's sometimes best. And Jesus told his disciples to do that. Go in. If they don't want you, it's okay. Abandon them to their fate. In other words, leave them up to God and just go, that's your deal, God, I asked you, and you said to me it was okay to leave. And there are times when it's okay to do that. It takes an incredible discernment. And then that's kind of the third way that Jesus talks about this here. This is kind of the third thing He, he way he did ministry. And we see this in in verse 7 to 9. It's really this unusual text that's dropped right in the middle of our section. And and it's a head-scratcher. Let me read it. Um, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist he's talking about, John had been raised from the dead. Um, If you remember, Herod had killed John the Baptist by this point. Um, uh, by, verse 8, by some it said that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, well, John the Baptist, I beheaded him. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Uh, Herod has had John the Baptist killed And Herod is very protective about his position of power because Herod knows he's an illegitimate king. He did not have the right genes to be king of Israel. Uh, He was appointed as a puppet by the Roman Empire. And so he's in this position and he's freaked out. Um, If you remember a different Herod, Herod the Great, uh, had a, a bunch of babies killed in Bethlehem because he was afraid when he heard that this Messiah had been born. There's always this sense of, got to protect my power because I know I'm not legitimate. And he's freaked out about Jesus. And so we've got this little bit about Herod dropped right in the middle of Jesus sending out his disciples. What's it doing here? Why is Luke put this right here? Verse two, Jesus sent them out. Verse six, they go out. Verse 10, they come back. Why is, I mean, that outline makes sense. Why is Herod dropped right here? Well, Luke, I think, I think Luke is begging us, to compare Herod to the disciples. He's been setting the stage for us to see the disciples, getting ready to go out and do ministry. And, and he wants us for a second to just compare Herod to the 12 disciples. Luke wants this. Here in verse 7, you notice the text says that Herod was perplexed. Um, I think about the disciples in chapter 8, when they're in the boat and Jesus calms the storms. It says... Kind of a similar word. They marvelled, like Herod's trying to figure this out. They're trying to figure it out. Uh, here in verse eight, he talks about Elijah. Like some people are saying, "Hey, this is Elijah come back from the dead," or "This is, this is the Elijah. This is the Messiah." Uh, this same thing happens in 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 the future in in verse thirty of chapter nine when the transfiguration occurs and Elijah appears. Elijah and Moses and. And so you're seeing this comparison. But the biggest one is here in verse 9, the question that Herod asks. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this? If you were to flip back to chapter 8, verse 25, after Jesus calmed the storm, what do they say? Uh, Chapter 9, verse 25, the last half. Who then is this that he commands even the wind and the waves? So Herod is going, who is this? The disciples went, who is this? The difference? Herod dismisses the claims of Christ. It says he's curious. Uh, Eventually later, Jesus will get drugged before Herod. You remember in the Passion Week, the, the, the Pilate says, well, I don't know what to do with this guy. And he sends him off to Herod. And Herod gets his curiosity. You know, he gets his moment. But Herod is merely curious But the disciples embrace the claim of Jesus. And this is all working up to this moment of transformation where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus doesn't disciple Herod. He disciples the twelve because he knows whose seeking is sincere. He gets it. And we need the Spirit of God here. We need the Spirit of God to help us discern who is sincere and who isn't. See, the truth is some would say they seek Christ, but it's merely for comfort. And it's an insincere. Some would say they are seeking Christ for security or wealth. And most just are seeking Christ out of curiosity, trying to drag his name <laughs> through the mud. Some are just going out after Jesus to say, I'm going to learn about him to bring him down, to bring these Christians down. We must do ministry with discernment because we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. I meet with a group of guys on Tuesday mornings and uh, this last Tuesday we were meeting talking about just what it was like to work in a corporate environment. I don't work in a corporate environment. Uh, I I haven't really and and so that for a long time and, and the struggles of working in today's corporate environment. We were discussing this and and um, one of the fears that comes up is of, of proclaiming the gospel in word or deed, because in today's corporate culture, uh, if you are offensive to anyone, you're going to get drugged down to HR, whether you intend it or not, right? But intent doesn't matter. If you accidentally offend someone, you know you're getting drugged to HR. And like, it's just this, this fear of, of trying to live out your faith in the corporate workplace. And so what's the answer to that? Is it to just be bold and say, I don't care what happens to me? Maybe. Is it to be timid? You just put your head down, I'm just going to get my job done? Maybe. Um, is it to speak the gospel with words only? Maybe. Is it to sp- maybe the answer is to speak the gospel just in, in deed, to just love people and get a chance? Maybe. I, I don't have a lot of great answers for you. I do know this that there is a risk that we take in following Christ. But we have the Holy Spirit of God. And there is a discernment that we have to have in every workplace situation we go into. We have to know who is the Herod, a charlatan, and who is the good soil of a disciple. Uh, And there's some real prayer that has to go on here. There's some real discernment. And I can't just tell you, oh, in your situation, be bold, be timid. I don't know. But I know you have to discern because there is going to come a time where the truth and the hope of the gospel is way more important than any risk that you would take. You have to discern. And you have the Holy Spirit of God. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you place your faith and trust in him, you have the Holy Spirit and he will help you discern. Because we've been enlisted in the labor force of the kingdom of God. And I think that's what Luke is kind of telling us here through Herod, is to say, not only is this going on, not only people try to figure out who Jesus is, but we got to discern between who the sincere seekers are and who the insincere ones are. And God is the only one that knows a human heart. So just ask. In the kingdom of God, enlisting means doing the work Jesus did the way Jesus did it. So what happens once we've been enlisted? All right, you've been enlisted. You go, okay, Dave, I I, I hear you. I see it in Luke 9. I'm I'm, I'm enlisted. What now? Uh, Well, verse 10, the last part of our passage. By the way, the little headings in your Bible, they aren't a part of the original. They're just markers to kind of help you find things easier in the Bible. And so sometimes we see the paragraph break and we think, that that's where it should be. But I don't think this, I think this ends in verse, the first half of verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. <laughs> he sent them, they went, they came back and reported. Um, now, there are no emojis in the text, but I wish there were I wish we had a little emoji right here, like that we could explain what was going on in the disciples' minds as they reported back. It's kind of just just the facts, you know, but um, I think, I think that there's genuine shock in their voices. The ministry that they did was important and Like the authority and power of Jesus was real and they experienced this going out dependent upon the Father, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, being discerning. And they had this and they did this and I think they came back and said, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. But like it worked. (laughs) We did it. I I think, I think that's there because that's what I would do. (laughs) Like, you've got to be kidding me. Jesus goes, No, like this was the plan. (laughs) Like, you would go do this. You see, there's this sense in which we just need to take a moment and stop and say, Thank you, God, for what you did through me. There's just this moment where we stop and say, I've been enlisted to do the work Jesus did, the way Jesus did it, and thank you for this opportunity. Um what, just let's stop for a second and evaluate last Sunday. I mean, here's sort of this movement we had to go through deeds, open up an opportunity through words to share the gospel. We, word and deed. We tried for both of those things. Every house, every homeowner, we, we sought to engage them in a conversation saying, how can we love you and pray for you? How can we show and speak the words of Christ? And, uh, you know, like, let's. I mean, it's good to just stop and go, oh, what'd you do? I look around, and I saw a bunch of people who genuinely cared for other people. I mean, it was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I thought it was amazing. Our, our people genuinely cared, and you guys served in miserable conditions. It was miserable out there, but I remembered what the Lord did for us. And I think as you guys were out there suffering a little rain, it was pretty cool because compared to what Christ suffered for us, that was Nothing and you just decided you were going to do it. You go, we made a promise to do these things, and we're going to do it. Uh, it was pretty awesome. I didn't hear complaining. Our eyes were off ourselves. Our eyes were on the work that God put in front of us, and gospel relationships were built. I heard more and more people say, oh yeah, at Arte, we had a chance to talk to this homeowner, and, and this homeowner had this experience, and, and I thought, oh, that's amazing. And God, you just got to use us for one Sunday, like in this tangible way, we all went out together. It was powerful. And God, thank you for what you did. Now, we also have to remember that when we evaluate and sort of report back to Jesus and say, thank you for what you did through us, that we have to remember that there's a danger. There's a danger in doing. And the danger would be that we would do, first of all, because kingdom work feels good. We have to be careful of this. I've heard many, many Christians say, oh, I love helping other people because it makes me feel so good. But if you do the gospel just because it makes you feel good, there's a danger there. Because we have to be convinced that what we do is good for others because it's good for the gospel because it's good for the kingdom work of God. Um. The other risk is that when we serve others, we put ourselves unintentionally above them. We say, well, we're sort of more important. But the gospel levels the playing field. We can't, as Christians, ever say that. We can never, ever in attitude place ourselves as more important than someone else. The one stuffing the paper bag full of leaves is no better than the one for whom the bag was stuffed. Because Jesus didn't place himself above us, did he? If anyone had a right to place himself above us, it was him. Oh, but by the way, he transcended time and space and came down to us and our level and became one of us. And therefore demonstrating how in attitude we minister to others. And Jesus didn't minister because it felt good. (laughs) I mean, every time we see Jesus ministering, he's experiencing conflict, opposition, even death. It was painful. We just have to remember this as we report back to him, as we say, Jesus, look what you did. We have to remember that why we do ministry and why we care for others is important. We can't do it for a feel good. We can't do it in attitude placing ourselves as greater than someone else. We just evaluate our hearts, and ask Jesus to do that. Because here's the truth. When we do the kingdom work of God, the way Jesus did it, when we do this together, when we do this, it's because we know there's a power that the gospel has that nothing else can do. So uh, I closed with this story. Uh, In the news, it was all over the news this week, this uh, story out of Houston about the courtroom sentencing of Amber Geiger. She was the police, uh, off-duty police officer that entered another person's home accidentally and shot him. So there's this racial tension in this because a white police officer shot a a black man and killed him in his own house. And uh, She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And, of course, there's all this tension in Houston, in this community, you know. And the the man's brother, Brant Jean, sat on the stand during the sentencing. And here's what he said. I I, I said, I forgive you. I don't want you to go to prison. He said, but what I want you most of all to know is that Jesus can forgive you. And and then I was bawling. I'm crying like a baby when I'm watching this video. He begs the judge to come down off the stand and and hug her. And the judge allows this, and he comes over and and they hug, and there's just weeping and forgiveness. And I just thought as I'm watching this unfold, only the gospel can bring this kind of healing. Only the gospel, only someone who is convinced of the level to which we have been forgiven can extend that kind of forgiveness to somebody else. Only the gospel does it. (laughs) You see, you've been called to do the work that Jesus did, the way he did it. Let's pray, and then we'll stand for our benediction together. God, would you, in your grace, give us discernment to do the work you did, the way you did it. And let us be agents of the kingdom of God wherever we go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.